0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning and welcome to Paramount Church. If you're visiting with us today, we're grateful that you're here. We hope that you feel welcomed and encouraged as we open our Bibles together to Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through 20. Also if you're new here today you'll find that uh, typically what we do on Sunday mornings during the time of preaching in our church is that we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We're really committed and really uh, find our joy in understanding what God has said to us in his word and we think that a great way for us to do that is just to walk together verse by verse through the letters of Paul or through books in the Old Testament like the Psalms And so over the life of our church, we've been through a number of different books this way, and it is a way, it's the primary way, that we feed on God's word. We want to know what God has to say to us, and so it's with a lot of joy and expectation that we come to the next passage in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. What we've been finding in the book of Galatians, which we find all throughout the Bible, is that God is speaking through his appointed messengers clear truth into our lives. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible puts it straight to us. The Bible brings us the high and glorious truth of who God is and, and what he's done for us in Christ and speaks to us into our very lives. He doesn't just tell us these big truths that hang out over our heads, but what he does is he has an interest in ministering even to our souls to the things that we believe and the things that we want and the lives that that we live and the challenges that we face, our trials and troubles and temptations. And with his beautiful good news, he speaks his his grace and his mercy into all of those places. And that's that's one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible is a a real conversation. It's a real message to us, those who, who feel our need for it. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, in recent years, decades, maybe even uh, so many of us have, have had this interest or uh, affinity for TV shows that are, that are all about reality, about reality TV or court TV, or maybe even, even though it's not reality, soap operas. There's something about interpersonal communication of what really matters to two people that attracts us. We're really finding that in the book of Galatians, and this morning is a special place for that. Because as we come to this text in Galatians chapter 4, in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to these Christians at the time when he was living, he has been giving them a lot of truth about the gospel. He's been laying out what it means to be a Christian and especially laying out the difference between trying to relate to God on the basis of our works, the things that we would do for God, or the rules that we would follow, or the commands that we would keep, as though we could earn God's favor by doing good things. We could maybe overcome our sin by just doing more good than we do bad, and then we'd be cool with God. The difference between that kind of living before God and the kind that is represented in the Bible through the message of the gospel, which is that that God chose by an act of incredible grace and mercy to send his own son into our world to live a perfect life in our place. In fact, to do the very thing that we cannot do is to keep all the commands and to follow all of the rules and to be in ourselves really righteous. But instead, he sent Jesus to do that on behalf of sinners like us so that then having died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. He would rise again and then give us righteousness as a gift that he would bring us into his covenant family and keep us forevermore, not because of anything we have done, not because of anything that we could do, not because of anything that we are, but only because he loves us. It's an amazing, amazing truth that's captured in the book of Galatians that Paul has been unpacking. But what we're going to notice this morning is this. Paul's tone with the Galatians changes here. If we thought that he was being personal and conversational and intimate with him, and he he has been, he's going to get even more intimate and we're going to see some I hesitate to put it this way, but there's no other better way really right now. Some form of reality TV. We're going to see him engage these believers really from his heart, expressing all of his real concerns, his real fears about them and their faith. His his real burden to minister to them and to reach them with the gospel. We find that this morning. And ultimately, we're going to find that his main concern is that they are not pulled away by anything outside of them or anything inside of them from trusting in Christ and enjoying the freedom of his grace and his mercy. In fact, this morning, you're not going to believe this. This is a one point sermon, just one. So if you're taking notes, you have very little work to do. You're probably grateful for that. Here's the one truth that I want you to see this morning from this text. Here it is Christians pursue the ultimate freedom of knowing God, and they do it for themselves and they do it for others. This is central. It's not everything, but it's central to what it means to be a Christian. So if you're here this morning and you're not real sure what it means to be a Christian, or you're not sure in the deeper parts of what the Bible teaches, what it means to relate to God by grace, then today is your day. Because you have an opportunity with the rest of us to better understand what it means to pursue and enjoy and know the freedom, which is an ultimate freedom, of knowing God. Our world, and especially our country majors on versions of freedom. We do think that in our country we have great freedoms, and we do. We have wonderful freedoms, but they cannot compare to the ultimate freedom that we know as Christians in Christ. And so with Paul, we want to better understand what it means to pursue the freedom of knowing God. Here's one of the sad realities about the church in Christianity, and the Bible, is that God's word gets a bad rap. Jesus gets a bad rap. Christianity itself gets a bad rap. We, as Christians, get a bad rap. Because the world doesn't seem to understand that Christianity is about ultimate freedom. When you talk to friends who are not Christians, you try to share the gospel with them, you often hear them chime back at you, well, I don't really want to be a Christian because then I have to give up all of these things that I enjoy. You see, the message, the bad rap is that Christianity or following Jesus is really a kind of enslavement. It's a restricting life that takes away the fun. It takes away the happiness of life. It takes away the things that you enjoy and that you're used to doing. And while it is true that when we come to Christ, we're called to a different kind of life that by no means has any hint of enslavement. It has every hint and every flavor of ultimate freedom. That's why we can say with confidence and with real joy that if you want to be free, if you want to be happy, if you want to have a life of joy and meaning and purpose, you will only find it in Jesus Christ. You will not find it anywhere else. You can try, and maybe you are. Some days I am. I'm trying to look somewhere else, But we will not find it anywhere else. This is a central concern that the Apostle Paul has for these believers in this area called Galatia. And what we find this morning is that if the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message of his life, death, and resurrection for sinners like us, by which he saves us and keeps us by grace alone, not by our works, not by good deeds, not by rule following, not by reputation, not by family, not by wealth, if the gospel will have its perfect result in them, they must come to understand the magnificent freedom of knowing God. Freedom. I want you to notice that Paul's central concern in this passage is that these Christians— having come to know the freedom of belonging to Christ, they've come to know the the marvels of his grace and mercy toward them in his son are turning back to slavery again. Earlier in the letter to the Galatians, Paul refers to them as being under a kind of spell. It's really striking language. It's as if they had come into this open field of freedom, but then, as soon as they got there, shortly after, they've fallen under a spell that's blinded them to everything that they had come to know. And instead of enjoying the field of God's freedom and His grace and reveling in living for Him and obeying Him with, with incredible gratitude, they instead left the field. And they went back to where they had been. They went back to living, not in freedom, but in the former slavery under this restrictive kind of life that says you must make yourself righteous. You must work yourself into God's kingdom. Notice what he says in verse eight. This is where the shift happens. He's been talking about how they have become heirs. This was last week. They have become heirs in, in Christ, heirs through the gospel. And now he says to them, but, in verse eight, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. Notice this first. Since you didn't know God, you were enslaved. That's the opposite of what the world thinks, isn't it? The world thinks that if you know God, you're the person enslaved to these other things and this way of living that's so restrictive and unhappy and unjoyful all the time. But Paul, rather the Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write these words, says, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved. That's what slavery is. Slavery is not knowing God. It's not having the freedom of knowing him. And they were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. They were enslaved to all of these these piddly little things that have no real power Imagine that, exchanging the God of the universe who offers ultimate freedom and joy and his love forevermore and exchanging it for little trinkets in the world, little flea market items that have no power, they have no value. But this is what he says. Then he says in verse 9, but now, here's their story, that's where they were, then because of God's work in them, this is where they've come to by faith in Christ, but now Since you know God, or rather, have become known by God, that God has come into your life and he's captured your attention and he's taken you as his own and adopted you into his family, he says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? This is real. This is real talk. This is real talk between Sort of two, two people, group of people in Paul. He's really expressing his heart here. This is where it gets down into the, the nitty gritty of their lives, of, of what it means to be a Christian. You're hearing him pour his heart out in this incredible concern. He is not talking to them like some street preacher just shouting at them. He's not talking to them like they're in a classroom and they're failing the class. He's talking to them like his brothers and sisters. He is so hurting and so burdened by the reality that they're missing it. You're missing it. You're walking away from true freedom, true joy, true happiness, all that God has offered you. And he says to them in verse 9, Do you want to be enslaved to them? All over again? It's very similar to another place in Galatians where he says a similar kind of question. He says, those of you who want to be basically justified by your law-keeping, by all your good deeds, he says, don't you read the law? Don't you now know how how burdensome and impossible it is to please or impress God with the stuff that you do or the person that you are or the way that you talk? Do you really think that you can impress the God of the universe who who has no match anywhere and has all glory and all power and all sovereignty and sufficiency? You really think that that's impressive to him? This is real talk. And this is real concern. It's a lot like the experience you might have had. Either being someone who has struggled with addiction or knowing someone that you love that struggled with addiction, you know that there's a kind of sad, tragic routine to it. It's a routine in which someone is enslaved to something in their lives, and then somehow there's this this openness of freedom, this this opening of freedom, and and things change, and then they seem to be free for a while, but then it's like they just go right back again. And it doesn't make sense to, to us when we're looking from the outside in. Why would you do that? You were enslaved and now you're now you're free. Look at your life. Look at all of the things that have changed. Look at your family. Why would you go back again? Because this this thing or these people are, are wooing you and you're listening to them, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. This is Paul's big concern. It doesn't make any sense. But this is what was happening to the Galatians. But it wasn't a drug. It wasn't alcohol. It wasn't social media. It was something far more important. It was actually their relationship with God that was, that was in turmoil because they were being wooed. They were being attracted or tempted by these other voices outside. Maybe similar to our addicted friends who have others that are trying to kind of welcome them back into that life. That's what was happening to the Galatians. And that's why he says to them, Do you want to be enslaved all over again? Okay, so what was Paul seeing? Because he's looking at their lives and he's seeing something in them that is raising these big alarms. For them, what he was seeing was that they were observing, he says here, days and months and seasons and years. So there was a group of people called the Judaizers, And what they wanted to do was take anyone that was trusting in Christ by grace alone, and they wanted to kind of bring them back into this this self-righteous, self-justifying lifestyle where if you want to relate to God, you want to know God, you see the path to God as good deeds. If you want to go to heaven, Make sure you do more good deeds than bad deeds. It's that kind of thinking. If you want to know God or you want to be blessed by him, make sure you're doing all the stuff that he likes and that he says to do, because really that's how he blesses people. He weighs everybody out. He, he gives you a report card. And if you get an A, then he loves you. And if you get an F, he doesn't. And somewhere in between, there's like you're on this spectrum of love. This is what's happening to them. But in their case, the Judaizers are, are luring them back to a life that says, okay, here's what real righteousness is. We're righteous because we observe certain ceremonies and festivals and rites of passage and ways to atone for our sin. And if we just keep up with all of these rules and days and years and seasons and months, then we're cool. We're good with God. Check, 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 check. We can rest at night because we know we're in the club because we've done what we were supposed to do. And that's why Paul says to them, I am fearful for you, verse 11. More real talk. I am fearful for you. That perhaps all of my labor for you has been wasted the labor all of the preaching all the ministry all the encouragement of the gospel all the teaching of the bible he had laid out everything for them in in terms of what it means to know god and his grace and his mercy what is the true gospel what does it really mean to be a christian and now he sees maybe all of that work was for nothing there were moments where Paul, I'm sure, like any pastor, was just overcome with joy and happiness because he saw in them all of these changes and they're rejoicing and they're living in, in, in beautiful ways in the freedom of knowing Christ. They're no longer burdened by, this, by the, the shackles of feeling like I've got to live up to the standard in order for God to love me. No, he loves me. He's proven his love for me. And I'm resting in that he was happy about it. But now all of a sudden he sees them And they're going right back to that way they used to live. And now he is afraid that maybe it was all for nothing. Maybe you're really not Christians because that's not what Christians do. That's not what Christians think and believe. That's not how Christians live. Maybe all of my work was wasted. We do the very same thing it doesn't mean that we're not Christians because we all have, like the Galatians, these kind of back and forths in the Christian life, but what we're learning to do is, is see them. We all have this kind of tendency or temptation to go back to that old way of relating to God where, where we want to make a case for ourselves of how good and deserving we are of his favor. It's, it's a really common thing for, I mean, I think it's common for every Christian to do this. So, so wh- how does that happen? How would you see it in your life? There are thousands of ways, but it could be some of the obvious ones, like what's, the, what's our version of the days and the months and the years and the seasons and trying to keep up with the theological Joneses and to stay in the club? Sometimes it's that we go back to putting our hope in our reputation. We go back and put our hope in our, our self-appointed report card of grades. How well am I doing? Am, am, I, am I doing most of the right things? Do I read the Bible enough? Do I pray enough? Um, do I swear too much? Or is it just about enough? It's right. Do I watch the right things on TV? Do I go the right places? As long as I go to those places and do these things, then I think everything is fine or we go back and we put our hope in you know like our wealth or uh, the car that you have or your your family reputation there's so many different things it's the same kind of shift that Paul is concerned about and we should be concerned about it too we should see it in ourselves because it says something about what we really believe and, and you know why Paul is so concerned about this he's concerned about this in especially because He sees himself in them. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am. Now, what does he mean? Just keep this straight. He's talking about how he is in this moment. In this moment, he is a person that has come to see the grace of God and embrace it and live in the freedom of knowing Christ. Not trying to please God with works, but rather obeying him out of gratitude for what he's already done. Not living under the burden of a bunch of laws and rules that make him righteous, but rather looking to Christ alone as the one who makes him righteous and glorifying him. He says, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What he's doing is he's kind of looking back in his life and saying, come be the way that I am because I understand what it's like to be where you are. And there's hope, there's freedom. Come into the field of freedom with me because I have been in the field of that slavery. And I am, I am, I am encouraging you to come out and to be with me. He says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have not wronged me. They have a good relationship. He says in verse 13, you know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. He said, you didn't despise me or reject me through my physical condition, was, though it was a trial for you. He's sort of unpacking what their relationship was like. They have great relationship. That In fact, as he came to them with the gospel, they embraced him. And it seems like he had some kind of physical problem some people think it might've been like a sickness like malaria and it made it kind of hard to minister to him or maybe it made it hard for him to, to, to do the ministry that he was doing, but they embraced him. They didn't look down on him for it. They didn't kick him out for it. They didn't get impatient with him. They had a great relationship. You didn't despise me or reject me, though it was a trial for you. On the contrary, he says, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. He's calling their minds back to where they were. But that's not where they are now. Where are they now? Well, they've gone back. They turned their back on, on all of that gospel freedom, all those gospel blessings, and now they're going back to the old way of living again. And he's astounded, he's burdened, he's heartbroken. They're going back and they've been listening to the Judaizers and they have become persuaded of what they say it means to be in the family. We've all experienced that kind of thing. Man, we experienced that. I think back about when I was in middle school. That's a, that's a high time for being in or out of the club. I, honestly, I don't know what it is today, that, what, what exactly the things, but they're probably similar. Those of you who are my age or around that, you probably remember these things, like what meant to be in the club. If you wore, this sounds crazy now that we say it, if, if you wore your backpack with two straps out of the club, like, how ridiculous is that? But I didn't wear my backpack with two straps because I want to be in the club. If you pierced your right ear instead of your left ear out of the club, if you had a tag a loop on the back of your shirt out of the club, do you see how ridiculous that is? If you wore jeans that were too tight, talk about change, you were out of the club. This is the kind of thinking that Paul is concerned about. Because these Christians have gone back to middle school, these little, piddly, elemental ways of thinking about what it means to know God, and they have gone back to all of these ridiculous ideas that, oh, if you read your Bible, you know God. If you observe this season or this month or you do this thing or you wear this clothing or you look this way or you act like this, obviously, you know God. You're in the club but rather he's calling them back again to the truth, which is if you come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and you throw yourself at his mercy and you receive his love and mercy and you you follow him and love him and pour out your heart to him in gratitude for what he's done for you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is, that's what makes you a Christian. That's the truth. This has always been a problem. It will always be a problem until the very end. And we want to recognize it's been a problem in the past. It's been a problem all throughout really important periods of church history. You know, this is, which we, we mentioned, um, you know, a week ago or so, the Reformation of the 1500s. That's when some big changes were happening in the church then. This was what they were fighting over. This is what they were fighting for. And actually, coming out of that period were five sort of truths that have meant a lot to our church. And they're helpful to us even now to kind of frame out, so what does it mean to be a Christian? What are the key truths that identify that my heart is aligned with God's truth here are the five. Let's think about them for a moment. They're pretty easy. Remember, they might be new to some of us and this will be a good opportunity for us to capture them as best we can. You can write them down and, and you know, talk about them in community group and, and continue to think and pray about them. Here was the first truth that came out of that period that we really embraced. These, you could put these in a family of the five solas, which sola is just a Latin word that means only or alone. So the five alones. What does it mean to know God. You know God and can pursue His freedom if you know Him, number one, by grace alone. Grace alone is the truth that's represented throughout the Bible to remind us that the way that a person is saved from their sins, the way that they are forgiven, is not by their merit. It's not by all of the good deeds that they could do, or they, you know, they they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they, they get some new habits in their life and they they turn over a new leaf. No one becomes a Christian turning over leaves. People become Christians because God turns over your soul. He, he comes and changes you and, and he convinces you through the power of his Holy Spirit of his glory and opens your eyes to what you had not seen and he does it by grace alone. There's no one in this room, this is a beautiful, incredible truth of ultimate freedom and joy. No one in this room is a Christian simply because they chose to be Christians. It doesn't work that way. No one in this room is a Christian because God looked down and said, I pick you for my team. You're gonna be a great point guard. People are Christians by a miraculous work of God's grace alone. It's only his doing. We bring nothing, as is famously said, I bring nothing to the table except the sin that I needed to be forgiven of by grace alone. That's the first truth. Here's the second one. It goes right along with it. What it means to be a Christian is that I know God by grace alone through faith alone. It's similar to by grace alone, but it highlights the fact that it's not by my works. It's not by, it's not by some thing that I brought to God and I, I, I bought from him my salvation. It doesn't work that way. There are no good deeds that you could bring. Again, what are you going to bring? He has everything. You think that would impress him? It really doesn't. In fact, it only adds to our trouble when we come to him trying to bring something and pawn off our, our, our little trinkets to him as though those are going to earn us something because that's not the way he works. That's not what glorifies him. What glorifies him to save him by grace alone. Therefore, he tells us that the way to be saved is by faith alone. And not a generic faith, not a a faith that just believes in God and says, yeah, I have faith, I believe God exists. A faith in Christ, in his appointed person and redeemer, the means by which he brings us into his family, by faith in Jesus Christ. That means that there are no works for us to do. Rather, the only thing the Bible says is that the way that you come to faith in Christ or the way that you come to Christ is by faith and that typically is expressed by something, not that you do, by something that you say. Romans 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you hear anything about works? Do you hear anything about money? Do you hear anything about good deeds? Do you hear anything about what you wear? Do you hear anything at all about that? No. You heard this actually by accident in the public reading of scripture, which I love. Jared came up and did a fantastic job and then fumbled the words, which I love, because I fumble the words all the time. But in God's providence, he sort of fumbled the words into the perfect words. He said that we should bring our mouths to God. Or put our mouths in God? Yes. That's what Romans 10 says. Do you want to be saved from your sin? Do you want to know God and his freedom? Put your mouth in God. Confess with your mouth. If God enables you by his grace, that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, and that he is the answer to your sin. That's why the third truth is Christ alone. You keep up with them? Grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other person. There's no other prophet. There's no other guru. There's no other religion. There's nobody else to turn to. There's only one. There's only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There's only one. It is the person and work of Jesus that we place our trust in. And that's why that third truth is Christ alone. We don't look to anyone else. We look only to him. The fourth truth, scripture alone, the Bible alone. How do we know all of this is true? How has God communicated with his people? He's communicated in this incredible book of the Bible. And therefore we know by looking at its words which are living and active, they're sharper than a sword with blades on both sides. It cuts coming and going. It's powerful and it changes us. This is how we know. That's how we know this morning. And then finally number 5, the five the fifth alone is to the glory of God alone. That's what ties all of this together. Why is all of this so important to the apostle Paul? Because the Apostle Paul has captured the ultimate commitment that also belongs to God. You know what God's ultimate commitment is? Do you know what He cares about more than anything else? More than anything else in the whole universe, what does God care about? Himself, His own glory. He does everything, by our terms, 24 hours a day. He never sleeps or slumbers, and constantly he does everything for his own glory. That's why we can have freedom, because when he welcomes us in, he welcomes us into his glory, his power, his sovereignty. He is sovereign, he's wise, he's good, he's happy all the time, and this is the God who saves us by the five alones. This is what Paul is so concerned about because the reality is that there are lots of other voices. There's lots of threats, which we're seeing here. We feel them in our day as well because there's lots of reasons. There's lots of other people you could turn to. You could walk out of here. You could find a thousand people who tell you something different and they'll say it pretty convincingly. And if they put it in the right words and they offer you the right thing, your heart might go, hmm, maybe I should try that. Maybe that's where freedom's found. Maybe that'll really make me happy. Paul is concerned. He's on guard against the threats to this joyful freedom of knowing Christ. I had a really amazing experience last week. I got to go for the first time uh, to a naturalization ceremony at the courthouse. You know, when someone becomes a a U.S. citizen, it was an amazing thing to just to see and celebrate. And I was just kind of sitting there taking it all in. And I'll tell you what really struck my attention, caught my attention was, one, just a renewed appreciation for freedom. The way that it highlighted for our country the, the legacy and the truth of, of freedom. It's not perfect, right? There's no place of perfect freedom. But it was such a picture of that, and I just found myself really thankful for that because of all that it allows us to do, especially as Christians, like all that we, can, that we can do. Freedom is an amazing, beautiful thing. Not everybody gets to experience that. But it was also really striking to me as I was just like taking it in to see contrasted with freedom the reality of our world and the threat of against freedom. Two things I saw. I was kind of waiting for things to develop in the ceremony, get everything in place. And I was kind of walking the halls and I walked out in the lobby and I saw just the most heartbreaking poster. It was all pictures of kids, 9, 10, 11, 12, that were missing. Nobody knows where they are. They just disappeared. And just, I thought about that and thought about what a contrast between those two, to be in a place of such ultimate freedom and yet to have such a danger lurking. I was sitting in the little like waiting room where family and friends would sit while they were getting it together, and while I was sitting there, just kind of kind of you know looking around at people and eavesdropping on their conversations and and just real discreetly in walks this officer, mostly plain clothes, walking a bomb dog. <laughs> And boy, that struck my attention. Like what a, what a contrast of freedom and yet this underlying all the time threat to your freedom. You didn't even notice it. It's right there in the background. It really is such a picture of what I think spiritually the Apostle Paul is really feeling in his ministry to these Galatians. Seeing the beauty and the vastness of the freedom of Christ out in the field, and yet knowing as he did and as he was warning them about other voices and other things that would try to pull them away, constantly try to pull them away. There really were two things. You know, there's, there's the pressure from the outside of the Judaizers. You have that too. I have that too. There are outside voices that are always trying to pitch to us a different hope, a different freedom. But there is something worse, more dangerous, and it's inside of us. It's our remaining sin. Their remaining sin Continue to tempt them and entice them to think, well, maybe there's a better freedom out there. Maybe there's somewhere else that I could be you know, really happy. And it's all dressed up. It's all just dressed up like it's really fancy and shiny and attractive and wow, that's really going to make a difference in my life. And, and that's why Paul, because he's seen the difference, says, how can you do that? Why would you not why would you not stay with Christ? He says in verse 15, where then is your blessing? Where, where is this, this joy and this rejoicing and this partnership that we have had in the gospel? He says, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. It could be that the thing that was making it hard when he was with them was he, maybe the malaria or something else had affected his eyes and it was a real uh, you know, handicap to him. And so that's maybe why he says this. But think about what he's saying about them. You love me so much you have torn your eyes out and given them to me if you had to. So then have I become, uh, real talk. Have I become your enemy? Because I told you the truth, you get a sense of what their relationship had become. They had turned entirely against him. Why? Because they had become so persuaded that there was freedom somewhere else that every word he spoke to them about Christ and the freedom and grace and mercy of the gospel just wouldn't land. And they just would not have it. They wouldn't hear it. They would rather do it on their own. They would rather be righteous in themselves. They'd rather just keep the rules. They'd rather just be enslaved. He says in verse 17, they court you. They're courting you so eagerly, but not for your good. They want to exclude you from me. They want to keep us apart because they know. They know I tell the truth. They know that I am... I am a danger to their plan to keep you enslaved to these things in the world so that you would pursue them. And then verse 18, but it's always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. He's pursuing them even though not being with them through his letter. And we can take from this the same concern the same caution, the same warning. There is. It's very real. It, it might sound. It might sound like sensational. It might sound really crazy and like overprotective, but it is true. We live in a world of voices, and those voices would love. They would love to pull pull you off the gospel. They would love to pull me away from the gospel and make me hope in something else. And there's something inside of me that would love to go back. It's weird. Would love to go back to just doing it myself. Maybe then I can get the glory for it. That's the thought process. But instead, he has something else for them. He says, my children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Moms who have, who have given birth, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you went through all nine months and the labor and the delivery, and then 15 minutes later, the doctor came in and said, hey, we need to do it again. You won't want to do it again. Be heartbreaking. It would be so discouraging, but that's how much Paul loves them. I'll do it. I will suffer the labor pains again until Christ is formed in you. He says, I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice so that we could be together and we we could we could talk in person as friends and as as allies in truth because I don't know what to do about you. That's real talk. Man, listen to that coming from the Apostle Paul. I don't know what to do about you. He's feeling despairing, but we know what his despair does. It drives him to the Lord who is in control and therefore he labors. As we come to a close this morning, I know that it's been long. Wow, one point. Yeah, you thought it was short. I did too. (laughs) What does it mean for Paul to labor? This is what we want to take away because this is what we want to do as a church. Number one, how did Paul labor? What was he su- how did he suffer labor pains? One, he did it by preaching and teaching the truth. He did it by holding up the gospel, by telling as many people as he could, especially Christians, what it means to know God by grace alone and to enjoy, enjoy, to become connoisseurs of the happiness of walking in the freedom of knowing Christ who loves us by grace alone, not by our works. This is the preaching and teaching central to his ministry and life this is what we need to be doing. This is what we aren't doing. When we're a community group, this is what we're doing. We're trying to counsel each other and help each other in these ways. Number two, he did this preaching and teaching through incredible personal sacrifice and a lot of hard work. This was not a vacation for Paul. It was not a nine to five for Paul. He worked diligently and with great sacrifice and labor. He's using the language. He calls them children and he says, I'm suffering labor pains. You see what he's saying? It's labor, it's hard, it's painful, it's tense. But he's doing it for them because this is so important. This is what it will mean in part for us. It's not gonna be a vacation. It's not a nine to five. There are some inconvenient hours. But it is of paramount Importance, And then finally, number three, he labored for them in prayer and spiritual intercession, praying for them. Because what was driving his concern was not his own thinking and his own heart. What drove his concern was God's heart. He was concerned because this is what was on God's heart, God's mind that his people would have Christ formed in them and they would know more and more and more what it really means to know God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone and to the glory of God alone. That's what's on his heart. And therefore, the one takeaway for us is this, to do exactly what the initial point that we've made, have been making says, and that is for us to pursue Christ's joyful freedom of grace. Pursue it, chase it, find it, get your hands on it, get more of it. Keep trying to understand why you are so free in Christ. And then labor. Give your heart with joy. Give your labor on behalf of other people here, other places, our guests. We want this for you. We want you to know with us more and more of the joyful freedom of Christ so that we can live lives that are pleasing to him and are full of surging gratitude for what he's done. We need God's help. If you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian, you need to put your mouth in God. You need to confess that Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then, and then we're family. Then we're together. Then we can walk. And that's what we want to do. We want to walk together. Let me invite you to stand with me as you're able. And I'm going to pray before we sing again. Oh, Father, I pray that you would do this work in us. I pray that Christ would be formed in me. And I pray that Christ would be formed in us. I pray that you would give us a renewed sense this morning of the good news of Jesus, that it would become even just a little clearer to us of what it means to be free in Christ. And not to return to a yoke of slavery again especially a yoke of slavery that has us relating to you on the basis of our works, which is ridiculous. Or hoping in something else or what we could be or what we could do, but rather hoping in who you are and what you've done in your son. We pray for your help in this. We need your help. Please help us to labor for each other in this as well. And uh, we certainly do pray that for anyone who is hearing uh, this time that we have spent together and they don't know you, that they would come to faith today they'd be converted, and they would come to know the freedom and the joy of knowing you by grace alone, through faith alone, in your Son alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.